Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV and historic Waterbury, Vermont. This old studio, 1930 uh, started. The walls are just covered with... Uh, Musicians of Vermont who um, came through, had their radio days. It's just, it's an amazing, and Waterbury is very historic. Um, we're going to be talking this morning with um, Christine Keneally. Uh, she flew in recently from Australia, and uh, I'm very excited to um, be talking to her about the ghosts of the orphanage uh book that um is is out now and uh you can you can get it it's an amazing book and we'll be talking over the next hour about that uh we'll uh advise listeners that there are some disturbing um parts of of the topic of this book for sure and uh just want to uh forewarn you that uh you know use your discretion um, but now I would like to welcome uh, Chris to the show. Welcome to Vermont and to WDEV. Thank you so much, Brad. It's great to be back here. Yeah, it's great. Um, you have traveled back and forth to Vermont um, researching this book. As we mentioned, it's The Ghosts of the Orphanage, and the topic is an orphanage in um, on North Avenue in Burlington. Uh, it was in existence for about 120 years and uh had some some really awful secrets and and you uh pursued that yeah and it took a really long time um just sort of recovering that story from history and all the ways that it sort of been disappeared over the years and it was really important to me too to to tell the story of St. Joseph's, but in context of the global story of orphanages, because the same kinds of things happened all over the place in Australia and England in Ireland. And the history of the stories coming to light is actually quite similar to it's really sort of fascinating arc to follow. So it was very global. Uh, it was. And Burlington was a piece of that. That's right. You know, it was like, I mean, I think of it sometimes as, as an archipelago, as this kind of, you know, almost geographic space stretching across the world, populated by these orphanage buildings, which often looked quite alike as well. You know, these sort of big, spooky, you know, two to four story places, the sort of that blocky institutional architecture. And depending on whether it was run by a religion or the state, you know, the kind of grace notes or decorations that you would expect, the statue or the cross at the front. But visiting different buildings, you know, all over the place, it was an eerie kind of feeling to experience in different sort of countries and different towns and states, the very similar a very similar place. You had that familiar each place you went. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Exactly. Uh, which is part of the puzzle pieces, right? You, you you start building on one and then you see it again and again. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I try to research um, my guests ahead of time. And it uh, listeners, it, it's impossible for us to spend an hour because we could just talk about all of Chris's credentials. <laughs> um you 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 have uh, a great great grandfather who was an author and um really did a, a lot of what you have done with this book too 
you want to tell us a little bit about him and 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 how that influenced you? Yeah, I would love to. He was my great grandfather. His name was James Jerome Keneally, but he was known as JJ. And um, his book was lying around my house as I grew up, and it was just incredible to me to see, you know, our family name on the cover of this book and to realize that someone that I was related to had had done this thing. And as I grew up and actually read the book and engaged with the story, it became even more entrancing for me. So J.J. Keneally wrote a book called The Inner History of the Cali Gang. And I think a lot of Americans are familiar with at least the image of Ned Kelly. He was an Australian bush ranger. We think of him now as a kind of a freedom fighter, really, in the, um, the mid to late 1800s. And he, um, he was a man who went up against the local constabulary, which at that time in Australia was really British. He was Irish. He was part of this Irish community in this small country town. And there was a very oppressive... British police force, and there was a lot of prejudice and bigotry against against the Irish. Um, so Ned, um, Ned, I guess, is best known for the armor that he built for himself. There was this sort of famous last stand where he created this. I think it was, it was some kind of metal. I'm not sure exactly what kind of metal it was, really. It was the sort of the upside-down bucket on the head with the <laughs> visor for his eyes and then the chest plate. Um, so my great-grandfather grew up near the Kellys. The Keneallys and the Kellys grew up in the same place. And so he knew the inner story. He knew the story of the Irish community. He knew the story of the Kelly family. So they had been vilified and, um, you know, Ned ultimately um, was was caught by the police and, um, and was hung. And um, for quite a while, people thought of him as just an outlaw, as a criminal, as a bad person. But in actual fact, when JJ published his book and told the backstory and how the community had been treated um, by the authorities he really reversed that history, you know, and he showed that there'd been this oppression and there'd been this prejudice and Callie had been fighting for more than just himself. It wasn't just about money. It wasn't about anything like that. It was really about freedom, um, the freedom to be who they were. And so, yeah, so that kind of flipped the history in Australia. So from that point on, after um, JJ's book, people thought of Callie quite differently with a lot more sympathy and understanding and, the fact that someone could write the true story that actually affected people, you know, and that was a gripping story was incredibly powerful for me. So the, the apple didn't fall far from the great, <laughs> great grandfather that, tree. It took a while. <laughs> it took a while, but yeah, got there eventually. So in, in your credentials, um, you are a, a linguist, um, you science, language and culture. Mm-hmm. You, you speak um, several languages as well? I'm or? not a languages person. Tiny little bit of French, um, most of which I learned to actually read the documentation of the Sisters of Providence um, at St. Joseph's Orphanage. But it was more language in the brain that I did, um, that I studied. And, you know, I just focused on English and what's happening inside people's minds. Like, as we talk to each other right now, what's going on? What kinds of decisions does your brain need to make? Right. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that concludes our interview for today, but we will, no, 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 no. It was no. a while ago now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're talking with uh, Christine Keneally. She is the author of The Ghosts of the Orphanage, a, st- um, a true story of the orphanage, uh, St. Joseph's on North Avenue in uh, Burlington. 
And I want to uh, mention to listeners that um, I was very interested in doing this story. And I was very interested because when I was about three years old, my dad um, brought me to a visit to the orphanage to visit um, cousins who were briefly in there. And I was left at the door. I didn't go in. I felt it was sort of ominous to be there. Um, and I've always, you know, it's a landmark in Burlington and I have my mother and other family friends are buried in the cemetery next to right. the orphanage. Right. Lakeview Cemetery is, is just full of Burlingtonians and, uh, yeah. and for, for, you know, oh, back to the Civil War. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was fascinated by this story. And, um, so you, um, where did, where was the beginning of, of sort of the quest for this for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I want to talk about that. But first, can I, I just want to respond to what you said, because that, that is fascinating to me that you had that connection and, and that memory. And it's not surprising to me that the, the atmosphere was something that actually stayed with you. Uh, I certainly felt it when I visited the building before it was redeveloped. I walked through it and it hadn't been touched for years. Um, but what's so incredible to me about the history of orphanages in particular and in the United States is that history was almost completely disappeared and that there are really interesting reasons for that. And, um, and I'd love to talk about that. But given that it was disappeared, What's happening for me now, though, is I keep having this experience where you know there are very few history books, apart from a sort of a burst in the 90s, you know, which we can talk about. There's very little acknowledgement. There's not a lot of conversation. And yet when you talk to people, they say, oh, yes, that place. My grandfather was there. Oh, my great aunt was there for a few years. And so it's it's there. It's pervasive. It's inside the community still. It's inside people's families. But we just don't have the kind of conscious awareness that you would expect and that really we should have, given that it's touched so many lives. And it, it's not surprising, right, because it would if if people were there and experienced something that was horrific, um, they may not want to talk about it. So that's well, that, silence. That's true. The silence is really significant. But I think that the one of the ways to think about that silence is um, that had there been appropriate support, had there been validation, had there been acknowledgement, had there been an awareness, then I don't think the silence would have been quite the same. So it is absolutely true, though, that because of the ways in which people left the orphanage and went into the outside world and, you know, were not encouraged or validated in any way. There was this extraordinary stigma for a long time for people who uh, spent some time in an orphanage. And one of the first people that I spoke to, it was an Australian man who spent time in an orphanage in Sydney. He hadn't told his wife for, I think, 20, 30, 40 decades of that's sorry, 40 years of their marriage. Um, he he hadn't told her he was so ashamed and he didn't even have the words for that shame. You know, it wasn't something he consciously decided to do. It was just this terrible secret he held inside himself. And he had this extraordinary experience where he ended up meeting a woman who was founding. She was one of the first founders of this group in Australia. She had spent time in an institution herself. She got together with another woman 
and they started reaching out to people and it was the very first time that that had happened at all so that was in the 1990s and they put ads in the newspapers you know you remember you know we all used to get our information from the classifieds <laughs> right. ads in newspapers right so we read the ad in the newspaper and uh thought he'd go along and speak to this woman and you know i still remember him telling me about that experience and the relief that he experienced the day he told her his story and she essentially said to him yes it happened yes it happened to a lot of people it wasn't just you and you know he talked about feeling like you know superman flying through the air just released amazing relief yeah silence and the lack of acknowledgement yeah talking this uh morning with Christine Canelli uh she is the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage and uh listeners are just uh there are some some disturbing and sensitive things in this in our discussion today as, as we move forward uh want to let you know that um uh, it's a powerful message and uh i hope you stay with us of course um so chris we were talking a little bit about um you I mean, you're in Australia and yet you're, you've written a book that is heavy about Burlington, Vermont. But where, where did you, um, sort of get the, uh, notion that you would even do a book like this? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I guess I've been working as a journalist for a long time, but I started my journalistic work when I was living here in the States. So I lived here in the States for quite a while, grew up in Australia, based back there now, but did end up traveling back and forth a huge amount to write this story. But the impetus for it came from um, – actually, I was just at a conference in Australia. It was an archivist's conference. So I'm just really interested in information. And, you know, archivists are really fascinating people because they know where everything's kept, right? right? So interesting kinds of people for journalists to listen to. And I just really stumbled into a session. It was a presentation about a group of people who'd had all their information taken away from them. And I, di- I didn't even initially understand what they're actually talking about, um, how that could be. And it turned out these were people who'd spent time in orphanages in the 20th century. And they were sort of in their 50s and their 60s now, and they were trying to recover what had been taken from them. Um, so things like their parents' names, their own real names, not just their siblings' names, but whether they'd had siblings, just really basic stuff that it's hard, I think, for the rest of us to imagine not knowing about ourselves. And archivists were often on the receiving end of these requests, and they talked about it as a human rights issue, and it seemed really clear to me that it was a human rights issue. And I was also just very compelled by this awful conundrum that these people were in, this this you know, this absence of information about who they were. And I was really motivated and sort of I felt for them this idea, you know, I just how could this happen? Right? I just didn't understand how this could happen. So started reporting the story out for myself and started trying to find people who'd spent time in orphanages. And the more people I spoke to, the more extraordinary the stories were. So it wasn't just about information, although that was one of the sort of the very important things for these people all this time later. Um, but there were many stories of abuse, and the abuse was just ranged across, you know, emotional abuse, there was physical abuse, there was sexual abuse that was perpetrated by uh, both male and female clergy, as well as lay workers inside these institutions. And 
that abuse, of course, had sort of stayed with people for a very long time. And there were so many ways when they told me their stories that I could see you know, justice had not been done. There was this invisibility around these incredible experiences. Some of them, you know, they experienced events and situations which, you know, political prisoners could relate to, which soldiers in war could relate to. Kids were made to feel like they were going to die. Um, one of the characters in my book, Sally Dale, she was a woman who spent more than 20 years at St. Joseph's Orphanage in Burlington. She's a very brave amazing woman who ended up sort of in litigation in the 1990s and had a huge impact on that. Um, she had been taken up to the attic of St. Joseph's and that's a very, like I went up there before it was renovated and, you know, it was such a spooky, extraordinary space. I will never forget it. And she was tied into a chair there and told that she was going to fry. She was told it was an electric chair, and she was told she was going to fry. And just she believed it. She was a kid. She didn't know any better. Um, so just these incredible stories that initially I found hard to believe, uh, but the more stories I heard, the more the evidence began to accrue, and not just from one orphanage, but from many. There were so many stories in kind, if not specifically the same. Um, you know, and I was a bit like going through the looking glass, you know, and just finding myself inside this crazy world and trying to make sense of it and trying to work out how to tell the story of it. So uh, she didn't um, – Sally Dale, I did – you know, I've been listening to your book, and she's remarkable uh, how brave she was and how long she was there. She almost – became their indentured servant, right? Yes. Or she was their indentured servant for, for a long, long time. Was there an electric chair in the attic? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't that she was making up something about a chair. There was something that could actually yeah. function. Yeah. So that was a really significant uh, story for me because Sally told – a lot of stories about her time at the orphanage and you know many of them were initially particularly for someone like me coming in from outside that world with no real sense of what it was like you know I, it was a little hard to accept and it was incredibly important for me given how high the stakes were and how big the claims were to validate as much of this as I possibly could and so there were many of Sally's stories that initially uh, whilst hard to accept, I, I found really strong evidence for. But the chair was one that kind of haunted me because over the years, every time I spoke to someone who'd been at St. Joseph's, I would say to them, you know, did this? Did you ever see anything like this? Did you ever hear anything like this? And unlike many of the other stories, everyone I spoke to, and, you know, these were people from different eras, some from the same era, um, there was no strong reason to suppose that they would absolutely know about it. But I just couldn't find any trace of this chair, and it really bothered me. And then one day um, I got hold of the name of this lady who'd been there for one year in 1960. She'd been there with her sister, and I rang her out of the blue. And, you know, a lot of people, of course – you know, when I call and, you know, say I'd like to talk about this, you know, is this possible? You know, some, of course, don't want to talk about it. That's entirely fair and reasonable. Some people are really glad to hear from me. And it's something they've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And I think it's very validating for them that there was actual interest, that there was this sense that no, this is a story. What happened to you is real. So she told me about her time there in 1960. And I hadn't mentioned Sally 
I hadn't mentioned the chair. I'd raised nothing like that. And she started telling me a story about how one day she and her sister crept up to the attic um, of the orphanage and they went in there and you know it was a really vivid memory she was describing all these boxes with old clothes you know I'm assuming that potentially even from the 1800s you know old photographs old furniture and she said you know and then on the loft of the attic my sister and I we saw this chair and it had leather straps in the feet leather straps on the arms and there were straps where someone's head would be so it was absolutely a chair with restraints on it which is exactly what Sally had described where it had come from I don't know uh, one of the survivors suggested to me um, there'd actually been a sanitarium next door that building was later bought by the church and turned into Don Bosco which was kind of an annex for the orphanage just where the older boys lived um but that had been a sanitarium. Maybe the chair had come from there and just found its way into the attic of the orphanage and then, of course, put to such terrible use to terrify Sally. Mm, so frightening. The orphanage uh, operated from 1854 to 1974, 120 years, which is quite remarkable. Uh, it was the Roman Catholic Diocese of Burlington, the Sisters of Providence, which is out of Montreal, and Vermont Catholic Charities all played some role in the operation. From your book, it appeared that a lot of the uh, the sisters and maybe the priests were actually from Montreal. Is that was that predominant, or was it a mix? Uh, the sisters. Yes, that that was the case. A lot of them came down from Montreal and they grew up there. Some of them were local, but their parents had come from from Montreal, from Quebec. Um, so that was a very strong connection, and that's where their mother house is based. With the priests, more they were from here. They were local um, to Vermont, or even outside of Vermont, but not necessarily from Canada. So usually in the structure of the orphanage there would be one priest who was the head of the whole institution and you know he was treated and I, you know i'm sure you remember back in those days you know, the priests were gods right and very much so for the nuns not just the congregation um and then there would be sort of something like 20 to 30 nuns there at any one time and they ranged in age some of them were quite old 40s 50s 60s pretty tough to be that old and, you know, in a child, in an institution with lots of children. And then um, some of them were quite young. Some of them were, were, you know, young girls themselves, really novices, sort of thrown in at the deep end in this really difficult place. But one of the most powerful parts of the, the kids' experience was a lot of them spoke French, not English. Right. So the nuns would be there talking to them in French and the kids had no idea what was being said to them. It's amazing. Uh, we're talking with uh, Christine Keneally. She is the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage and a number of other books. She's a best-selling author. Uh, this is an orphanage on North Avenue in Burlington. was in existence for 120 years, and uh, it has a horrific story. And um, Christine um, originally... Um, got the story out in a BuzzFeed story and then has developed in, into a beautiful novel uh, that um, you're going to want to read because it's amazing. Um, we're going to be back uh, shortly after this break.
Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan. I'm your Monday host for Vermont Viewpoint, but you're going, wait a minute, it's not Monday, it's Tuesday. Well, I was so fascinated by this story, and uh, it's Christine Keneally. She's the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage, Orphanage on uh, North Avenue in Burlington, 120 years of existence, and really a story of abuse and and uh, and death. Uh, it wasn't just abuse. Um, you mentioned physical and sexual, but um, death as well. Um, you you mentioned Sally Dale, who was this longtime resident, and Sally Dale and others started telling their story. And it seems to me the conundrum was that people went, wait, we believe the church. We believe the authorities. We believe the priests. We believe the religion. And yet somehow these stories started coming out and getting some validation. Yeah, yeah. The 1990s was such an interesting time for that to be happening. So we know that in 2002, the Boston Globe Spotlight investigation revealed that, you know, not only had priests been abusing children in that diocese, but that there'd been cover-ups in the hierarchy as well. And that, that kind of changed everything, right? That sort of flipped that whole belief-disbelief thing in this really powerful way. And from that point on, people who came forward to tell their stories began to actually get traction. And, you know, there was a reasonable chance that a judge or a jury or people in sort of first responders would at least consider the possibilities that the stories they were telling was true. But in the 1990s, even though those stories started to be told across the United States, and if you look back at the old newspapers, you can see some people were coming forward, were trying to sue their diocese, were trying to make change or, or sort of tell the truth there was still this incredibly powerful shroud of silence across, particularly within religious communities and particularly in the Catholic community as well. So, you know, like I said before, the priest was God, right? So within the institution, anyone who might have been inclined to push back, to talk, to tell the truth was very much... um, unable to do so or unwilling to do so. And one of the really interesting things I um, found by going back through documentation from the Sisters of Providence, from their own documentation, was that, you know, there's a lot of really elevated, lovely religious language about saving the kids' souls, about teaching by example, about teaching them reverence and courtesy and all these really good qualities. But there are also these really strong messages, this very repeated, regularly repeated note about silence being a virtue and specifically with respect to nuns talking about the priests. There are explicit messages from the supervisor, things like don't talk about the priests who come and go and silence is the seal of a religious house. So this really explicit instruction not to talk. So that's within the institution and then within the community as well. You know, remember Sam Hemingway started reporting these stories when people came forward in the 1990s, really experienced journalism, really strong local press at the time. And um, he really engaged very deeply in the story. And he told me later that, you know, people were calling his editor at the Burlington Free Press and saying things like, this is blasphemy. 
you know, you shouldn't be allowing your reporter to tell these kinds of stories. So the will to, to sort of lock it away, to silence it, the idea that if you're telling a story like this, it's not because it happened to you, it's because you're trying to make trouble for the church, was really powerful and very, very hard for these really traumatized people to get that response. Yeah. um, Sam Hemingway, for listeners, uh, was a columnist for the Burlington Free Press, retired now from journalism that I know of, um, did break the story. And uh, the uh, it is amazing. Now, you you talked a lot about the fact that the, the Sisters of Providence out of Montreal were staffing, that you said 30 or more, Sisters in 2030, yeah. yeah. And, and a priest, were they a priest living on at the facility and then a mother superior and then? That's right. There would be a resident priest. The nuns were resident. There were certainly priests who came and went. There were programs in the summer where, uh, Brothers from a religious order would come to help entertain the children, although unfortunately, of course, that also meant people who were predators were coming in and getting access to the kids as well. Um, priests would visit when they came through the town, and sometimes there would be delegations from Montreal, groups of sisters, because they're also running the same kinds of homes up there as well. Right, and you had mentioned when we were off air about there was a there was a vibrant you, I think I mentioned this there was a vibrant um, Catholic community in Burlington at the time, uh, Mount Saint Mary convent and all of that, but you didn't think that they cross threaded much with the orphanage. So no. no, that's right. There was an incredibly active community, and you know I just remember looking back through local newspapers from the time you know when there were public events there would be a delegation from the Sisters of Providence and also from all the other religious orders that were there as well. Um, When I was reporting the book, I tried to find as many nuns or former nuns from the Sisters of Providence as I could, and that was quite difficult to do. A lot of them had died by that time. I found some who were unwilling to talk. I did end up talking to one in the end. But when I was struggling with that, I I decided to start looking for sisters who belonged to other orders and who were also here at the same time. And, you know, it's hard to be sure why they said what they said to me. You know, a, a lot of people don't want to revisit that if they knew about it at the time. But my sense was of the other women that I spoke to that they didn't know what was going on in the place. Yeah, yeah, which in some respects is good to hear. Uh, we're talking with Christine uh, Keneally. She's the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage. If you want to um, ask a question or or um, chime in on this, 802-244-1777. Maybe you have a, a memory. In fact, uh, we have Bobby on the line from Randolph. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hi, Bobby. Thank you. Um I don't know how far into the years you checked on the orphanage, but I know that when it first closed down as an orphanage, it took in some refugees that were there in like seven, like like seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Yeah, that's right. I heard about that too. Because my my mom worked there; she was the cook. Oh wow. Do you know, do you know, my, you know, that was interesting. That was a story I never was able to get too much information about. Do you know how long the refugees were there? Um, 
No, I my mom my mom left left work in there and went up to UVM to work in '78, and I I am almost I'm almost thinking that they weren't there any longer. They didn't need her any longer. Yeah, I think it was a brief period. Um, did your mom work there when it was an orphanage, or was it just after? Uh, no, just 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 after when the, when the refugees came in. Right. Okay. Well, thanks, Bobby, for the call. That's very interesting. So, uh, Christine, uh, the, and it, uh, we're going to get into, I want to let listeners know, I want to get a, into a little bit more of, of why this is such a compelling story. Um, there were abuses when I was listening to your book, I heard that, you know, kids were taken out of the, their, um, common bed space, which was probably 30, 30 bunks or, or cots. And would be brought into, you know, uh, somebody's bedroom and they were sexually abused. Um, that was documented as being fairly common. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And, um, and that kind of thing was occurring in all the time that I was able to get documentation or witness statements or interview people. So that's from sort of the very late 1930s through to the 1970s. And um, it, it was so pervasive. You know, I, I, I don't know that I could say that it happened to everyone who was there, but it certainly happened to many, if not most. Um, and, you know, just, just this incredibly distressing experience, of course, that then, you know, when it goes unacknowledged and then when people try to tell these stories about it and they're not believed, it becomes even more harmful as well. Yeah, I mean, just... To hear it, you go, oh my God, that can't be possible. But then, in fact, not only was it possible, it was, it was true. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, it, you know, maybe it wasn't everyone, but anyone who sees somebody missing, taken away, I mean, we, we the viewer, uh, yes. it's, it's not quite as tragic, but it's pretty tragic. Oh, that's actually such an important point to make. I mean, the stories that people told me of watching what happened to the other kids, even if it didn't happen to them themselves was just something that stayed with them for many, many years. Just that awful feeling of the powerlessness and the tragedy of that. And, you know, there were girls who were picked on. So I spoke to multiple people who remembered this one girl being, assaulted or bullied or harangued or harassed, um, whether it was by the sisters or by one of the priests. And that's also so damaging and, and, you know, needs to be hurt, you know. And, of course, the more this comes out, the more we actually accept this is reality, this is history. It actually happens to a lot of people. And certainly child abuse occurs in many different contexts to many different people. I think it's really important to find a way to to make it more openly discussed so that there is that willingness to believe there when an individual comes forward with a story. So there were deaths at the orphanage. Um, Can we talk about that a little bit? There were, and and there were stories of death. That was one of the things that got me into this 10 years ago. So even from these orphanages in Australia, from these orphans who spent time there, they would tell me about these abuse stories and about physical abuse And then one of them would sort of say, you know, and then there was the kid that died or, you know, I saw a child beaten and he died before my eyes or, you know, just these 
incredible stories like that. And, you know, as we've been sort of saying, initially I sort of filed it away in a separate part of my brain. I just like, I took on the abuse stories. You know, there's enough cultural support now that we get it. We, we get that you've got to actually listen and consider and, you know, trust but verify stories like that. But I realized after a few of these death stories that I'd actually just been putting them aside and, and sort of, I'd heard enough physical abuse stories by that point where I realized, you know, if you believe that kids were thrown down the stairs on a pretty regular basis, if they were sort of assaulted and hit in the ways that they clearly were, it actually made no sense to just say, you know, to just put the death stories aside and not to engage with them. It was illogical to think that deaths couldn't have occurred in a place like that. St. Joseph's is important because in the litigation in the 1990s, a lot of people came forward with death stories and the sort of the overwhelming response from all the sisters who were deposed, from the priests, from the diocese was, no, no, nothing here, nothing happened. And, you know, just by going through the death certificates for uh, that era for St. Joseph's, I found numerous deaths. And, you know, and as much as possible, I tried to trace the stories of people who told, um, who said that, they'd seen a child die. Sally Dale, who we were talking about, said one of her first memories of the orphanage is walking in the back of the orphanage with a nun and a child just somehow landing on the ground before her, you know, and then hearing smashing glass, looking up, seeing a nun at a four-story window with her hands outstretched. And one of the really interesting things about that story with Sally, you know, I wasn't, of course, as you can imagine, able to find documentation to show that that had happened, although... I tried my best. I tried so hard to find, you know, the names of the kids who were there at the time, where they'd all gone, what had happened to them. But there was this very visceral detail that Sally told. And, you know, she was this in her 60s when she sort of had a deposition. But this very childlike perception that the child hit the ground and then they kind of bounced up again. It was a very strange thing to say and remember, right? So I ended up speaking to a forensic pathologist, and I described this to them, and they said, yes, that's what would happen. If a child around that age, I think it was below 10, quite young, hit the ground from a height, you'd actually expect that to happen. So the idea that Sally had made it up becomes so much less plausible when, mm-hmm. when, and you know, this is before the days of Law and Order SVU and, you know, all these shows that talk about forensics constantly. She was clearly describing a real experience that she had. Right. Uh, it's, it's so horrifying. Um, we have a caller, uh, Rama from Williamstown joining us. Welcome this morning, Rama. Hi, Rama. Yeah. Good morning. And, uh, I, I haven't read your book and I'll put yet after that. I, uh, I won't go into detail on, on, on my past experience, sorry about that, but it's not through orphanages, but it is through the home abuse side. But right. what you're describing, uh, maybe in different relative scales, but it's a microcosm of what's going on in society with children uh, happening today, right this very day. And I phrase it to people, you don't really understand what happens when that front door closes on some houses. Yeah. It is horrendously brutal. I um I, I think the the my worst fear is is that people won't understand even after reading a book like yours. And I kind of have an idea what you're going to describe because I've witnessed it mm-hmm. I, through myself, through other people, and I've read plenty of it. This is something that, as a society, we make it 
almost mandatory that you turn away from, that you don't see because it's such a difficult thing. Yeah. Don't interfere with your neighbors. That's not my child. No, yeah. How, how can I? Yeah. And, and I just hope people won't, like, go read your book. I hope people will read your book, but I hope what they won't do is view it as some isolated incident yeah. or when they read in the paper some child being horrendously abused. It don't see that as an isolated incident, but it's part of something that is going on today. It is a it is a continuum. So Rama, thank I, you for writing the book. Well, thank you for your call, and and that's a really important point. And and I just want to say I'm very sorry for your experience, but I, I absolutely agree with you that this is still happening in different ways today. And you know, a, a lot of the reporting for the book was based on an article I wrote in 2018 for BuzzFeed News. And I can tell you that we got a huge response and that 6 million people across the world read that story or viewed that story. Um, it was a very long story. And so it showed me that there is the appetite there, that hunger for that kind of truth and validation. And I think you're right. We haven't really worked out yet how to best respond when we when we suspect something like that in our personal life, I think we all need to get better at learning how to do that. But I do think the awareness is growing and, you know, you've just contributed right now. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for that call. Um, I want to make sure that people know how to get your book. Um, we're going to, we've got maybe four more minutes. Um, how, where where do they go to get the book? So everywhere you get books. It's, so today's launch day. Today's Woo-hoo! the first day. Woo-hoo! Today's <laughs> the first day you can actually buy the book. Um, I'm talking at Phoenix uh, Bookstore in Burlington, and then there's a, a series of bookstores around uh, the state and uh, New Hampshire as well. I think they'll be visiting in the next few days. So all good bookstores and online as well. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the usual suspects. Awesome. It's, uh, it's a must read and, you know, I love the caller. I think that we can't turn our, our head away from this, be it neighbor, whatever, you know, when you're suspicious about something, follow through with it and, uh, you know, save a life. Even if it's, if it's one, not even if it's one child, it's, uh, remarkable. The, uh, there are a lot of, the readers will will find lots of um, horrific tale in your and true tale in in your. One of the things was about uh, a young girl who had to eat. She had an aversion to milk and was eat had to eat um, her her vomit after being sick, and finally, um, I guess, was validated by a mother superior or someone. A little bit that 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 was going on, but right. And later in life, a doctor told her she was lactose intolerant. So there you go. You know, she just needed an actual expert to assess what was going on with her and to help her. Um, but you know, there there are there are lots of dark dark tales, but there's also an incredible amount of resilience and courage in this group of people. And, you know, a survivors group came together. They were supported after the 2018 article um, by the state attorney general who began a restorative justice process. And they have been doing incredible things. They have lobbied the government for change. They contributed to the change in the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse for civil litigation. 
And they did an incredible thing. They changed American history. They got the statute of limitations on childhood physical abuse for civil litigation repealed completely. That's never happened before in the United States. So, you know, they're out there. They're fighting for kids in the future. It's not just about reclaiming their history and it's not just about validating what happened to them. They're really focused on, you know, Rama's concern too, children now and children going forward. Is there still an action step? There may be um, listeners out there who experience this. We're at the orphanage. We don't know. Um, can they still come forward? Is there is there something that can help them now? Yes, there's a website for the St. Joseph's. Um, I'm sorry, I, I've never been able to memorize the complete name, the, the Restorative Justice Inquiry. If you Google around, you'll be able to find it. You could reach out to people there. You know, I would encourage people also just to talk about it in their families and in their lives, right? Because as we said right at the start, it's there in that cupboard, right at the back of the cupboard in lots of people's families. So that's always a good place to begin. We are talking uh, with Christine uh, Keneally about her book, Ghosts of the Orphanage, uh, that is being released today. There's a quote from the Sisters of Providence, um, and I quote, We believe that the loving presence of God watches over the entire universe and remains attentive to the needs of all, active in us and through us. This is what we call providence. You took a journey through this whole research and and wrote the book, where did you land with your own spiritual religious beliefs and institutions and yeah yeah, well, you know, I did not see any of that providence that was so beautifully described in that quote one minute yeah oh, yeah. yeah, so um so that that's very disappointing, but I think religion done well. Is beautiful and it can elevate people's lives and connect them in community. And, you know, I certainly met plenty of people who'd been at an orphanage. Their religion still mattered to them. Some, some of course, abandoned it altogether, which is completely understandable. But some of them still very connected to either their original religion or to another. And it gave them great strength in their lives. Uh, Christine Keneally's book, Ghosts of the Orphanage, all the way from Australia, visiting us in Waterbury, Vermont. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad.